Welcome to the Cancer Care Connect workshop. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. During the workshop, you will hear from our panel of expert speakers. We will allow time for your questions and comments following the presentation. Instructions will be given at that time. If anyone should require assistance during the workshop, please press star then zero on your touchtone telephone. As a reminder, this workshop is being recorded. I would now like to introduce your moderator for today's workshop, Dr. Carolyn Mesner, Director of Education and Training at Cancer Care. Please go ahead. Well, thank you, Sonia, and I too would like to welcome everyone to today's program. And today's program is a collaborative effort between the Lymphoma Research Foundation and Cancer Care. And the Lymphoma Research Foundation has really played a key role in making today's program possible, so I really want to thank them. Um, and um, there are a number of other uh, cancer organizations and blood cancer organizations that also are um, um, listed on your brochures or the materials you've received from us, and and all of that um, help, but particularly the Pharma Research Foundation in really spreading the word about the program. And because of that, and your interest in the topic today, we have over 695 participants on the call today, which is really Amazing, actually, frankly. And I have to say that um, we also have international participants from Australia, Canada, Croatia, India, Nigeria, and the United Kingdom. So it's a bit of a global call as well. And we recognize that most of you are listening to the call in your home or office or however you've chosen to listen to it. Or some of you could be with a group of people listening to it. Um, um, and so um, we're really delighted to have you on the call. Now, today's program is supported through unrestricted educational grants to the Lymphoma Research Foundation from Genentech and Pharmacyclics, Inc., and I really want to thank them for their support of the program today. Um, now, we have wonderful speakers on our program today, and I want to begin by introducing our first speaker. And our first speaker is Dr. Jennifer Brown. Dr. Brown is Director, Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Center, Senior Physician, Dana Farber Cancer Institute, Associate Professor of Medicine, Harvard Medical School. And Dr. Brown will be addressing an overview of chronic lymphocytic leukemia, or CLL, current treatment options, and new and emerging treatment approaches. It's really my great pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Brown. Thank you. It's always a pleasure to be on this call and uh, talk to everyone. So I'm giving an overview of CLL as well as current treatment options. And I'll just remind everyone that CLL stands for chronic lymphocytic leukemia. It's a type of chronic blood cancer. And it's called a leukemia because the cells, the cancer cells themselves are most commonly in the blood. And that's what the word leukemia means. Biologically, we think of it as really more like a lymphoma in many ways. So sometimes this is confusing to people because they see information that refers to it as a leukemia or as a lymphoma, but it doesn't really matter. It's just one disease and most commonly called CLL or chronic lymphocytic leukemia. I like to think of it as a chronic disease. It is very heterogeneous, but for most people, it's a condition that you get diagnosed with often just accidentally or incidentally, you might be at your primary care doctor getting a blood count as part of your physical and notice that the white count is high. If the white count's high and that's due mostly to a type of cell called the lymphocyte, then we can send a test on the blood called flow cytometry that will establish CLL as uh, the diagnosis potentially. 
that does actually depend on how many cells are in the blood. There's also a form of pre-CLL that has a different, more complicated name called MBL, or monoclonal B-cell lymphocytosis. But that's more of a matter of detail. Not everyone will be picked up based on their blood count. Sometimes it could be because a lymph node pops up, often in the neck or under the arm, and then that gets biopsied, and the pathologists tell us that it looks like CLL. But it's the same disease. The disease itself tends to involve the blood, the bone marrow, from which the cells then circulate in the blood, as well as lymph nodes. And over the course of time, it may be more in one of those compartments than the other. And again, that doesn't have a major impact on how we think about it most of the time. Now, at diagnosis, most people don't need treatment, which is great. We generally treat people just if the blood counts are low, if there's anemia, for example, or low platelets, which is something we call thrombocytopenia, if there are big lymph nodes that are causing symptoms, and then the other reason is potentially symptoms. But when I see many of my newly diagnosed CLL patients, I find that any of the symptoms that they may have that we all have in the course of sort of normal life, joint aches and pains, various things, they become afraid that these are due to the CLL. And so I always say that they're usually not due to the CLL and that that's a, a key thing to remember to try to sort of get used to living with this disease. And so what might be more related to the CLL? Well, some amount of fatigue can be, although many people with early stage disease don't have much fatigue. And when it, the fatigue is often something that we try to manage with other lifestyle interventions, and Dr. Mado will probably talk a little bit more about this. But I always caution people that unless the fatigue is really severe, it can be hard to initiate treatment for it because the treatments then bring in other side effects. And so that's sort of a long discussion between you and your doctor about how you're doing and how that's affecting you. Other symptoms that people sometimes note include feeling more warm than they used to or having a sort of a light degree of sweating, not the truly drenching night sweats that happen at night with increasing frequency and are progressive. That type of symptom we want to know about because it's not so common with CLL and we want to make sure there's nothing else going on. But relatively more minor sweats and just feeling more warm than you used to is a common thing that we see in people with CLL and, again, sort of part of the disease. And a subset of people do get somewhat more infections. Sinus problems are fairly common. But many people, the most majority, in fact, at diagnosis don't have uh, these issues. And so, you know, you turn up your doctor, you get diagnosed with this, and but you don't have any symptoms, your blood counts are good, you feel fine, what happens? So generally then you move into what we call watch and wait. And this just consists of visits to the doctor periodically. The interval is usually determined by how the disease is changing, as well as some tests that we can measure on the CLL, which I'll talk about in a minute. And you check in, see how you're doing, and we follow you. And this period can go on for years and years. And in fact, some people diagnosed with CLL never require therapy, and hence the sort of chronic disease aspect. Now, in this phase, we do have some tests that we can run on the CLL that sort of help us think a little bit more about how long that watch and wait phase might be for people. 
because COL is a really variable disease, and it can move much more quickly to treatment for some people, but take very long or not ever require treatment in others. So there are a couple key tests that we often do. So one is called the FISH test, and this looks at genetic changes that are in the CLL cells. There are a couple common genetic changes associated with CLL that we look at pretty routinely. And we're most interested in the higher risk ones because then we may keep a closer eye on you as we watch the disease. And so the higher risk one, the highest one, risk one, is called 17P deletion, which is loss of the short arm of chromosome 17. And that affects a gene called P53, which is a well-known cancer gene. And sometimes we also check for mutation of the P53 gene, and we lump those two together uh, as one particular group that we look at. Then the, another somewhat higher risk chromosome is 11Q deletion, which is the long arm of 11. But again, with both of these, people can still have a long period until they need treatment. And so even if we find those, we still just watch and monitor the disease. The other major test is something called IGHV, and that stands for the immunoglobulin heavy chain variable region. So I mentioned that CLL is a kind of chronic blood cancer and that the lymphocytes in the blood are higher. That's because the lymphocytes are CLL cells. And so lymphocytes make antibodies to fight infection. And so all the CLL cells, they share one antibody gene. And we can look at that in the lab and test it. And there are certain features of it that tell us how the disease will behave over time, mostly in terms of how long it might be before someone needs treatment and what the rate of progression is that we expect. And there's also some difference in response to treatment based on that. And so that can be a very useful test if you're sort of newly diagnosed and trying to think about how things may progress. But similar to the FISH test, it doesn't change what we do when we meet you, which is really based on how you are clinically, how your labs are, not based on any of the prognostic factors. And so it's also sometimes the case that the prognostic factors are not checked right at diagnosis, but they should be checked as one approaches treatment probably. Now, there are a couple other things I like to mention that people should be aware of while they're in the watch and wait phase, as well as after treatment, but any phase of the disease with CLL. So there is an increased risk of infection that we know about, including hospitalization. And so I always recommend to my patients that they get their recommended vaccinations to help prevent these infections. So that includes a flu shot yearly. That includes the pneumonia shots, which are the Prevnar and Pneumovax. And I have been usually recommending the newer shingles vaccine, the Shingrix vaccine, although we don't have data specifically in CLL patients. Nonetheless, it seems that it could potentially be helpful, and it's safe because it's not a live vaccine like the older one, older shingles vaccine was. And so that's one issue. Another issue is that we do often see other cancers in our patients with CLL, unfortunately. And so I always recommend that people are very vigilant about doing all their recommended screening for other cancers. So things like colonoscopies, things like mammograms, pap smears, 
Skin cancers are quite common in people with CLL, and so I send everyone for a dermatologic evaluation as well at diagnosis. And so that, again, is another feature you want to keep in mind after diagnosis and throughout the course of the disease. So what about treatment approaches? So there's been a revolution recently in treatment. Historically, actually decades ago, we had just really an oral chemo pill. And then that progressed toward intravenous chemotherapy, which is more effective and which we use today, the most effective ones that we have, often together with what's called an antibody. So an antibody is engineered in the lab to attack a target on the CLL cell specifically. And the first one that we had for CLL was called rituximab, which targets something called CD20, which is on the surface of the CLL cells. And now we have a newer one called obinutuzumab, which hits the same target. And so both of these antibodies are very effective. They are intravenous, similar to intravenous chemotherapy. And so this type of regimen usually takes six months, given in the oncologist's office at some interval, which is usually four weeks in CLL. And at that point, then, you enter remission and go back to sort of a watch-and-wait observation phase off treatment until if the disease comes back at some point, then you might move on to another therapy. Now, in the last five years, we've had that revolution I was talking about. In addition to the new antibody, the obinutuzumab antibody, we have several new targeted pill therapies. And these bind specifically to some feature of the CLL cells, sort of like the antibody, except these are more inside the CLL cells, proteins that make them grow and divide. And the targeted therapies block those proteins. And so ibrutinib hits a protein called BTK, which is required for the CLL survival. And ibrutinib has come into widespread use in CLL. It's approved for any line of therapy of CLL. And it's quite effective, particularly for higher-risk disease that doesn't respond as well to chemoimmunotherapy, but really all patients respond quite well to it. It is a different paradigm where continuous therapy is required, but it is also an oral therapy. So you're able to take it at home, for example, with monitoring at your doctor's office. Now, abrutinib has a sort of unique side effect profile. Each of the targeted therapies has a unique side effect profile, somewhat different from chemotherapy, which Dr. Mado is going to talk about, so I won't talk about it too much. What I will mention is oftentimes we expect the treatment to immediately reduce the white blood cell count. For example, with chemotherapy, antibody therapy, the white cell count goes down. But with abrutinib and similar drugs, we don't actually see that always. Sometimes the white count will go up which is because cells come out of the lymph nodes and bone marrow into the blood and actually raise the white count initially. That stabilizes, and then over time on the therapy, it comes down, usually over six months, a year, or even longer, but it does come down. Usually, patients remain in a partial remission on abrutinib, and so hence the need for the continuous treatment to control the disease. But people can remain on abrutinib for years. Then the other major pill therapy that has now an approval for any relapsed patient with CLL who's had at least one prior therapy, is a drug called venetoclax. And that was originally proposed also as a continuous therapy, but the most recent proposal is a two-year regimen where you get it for two years, 
go into a deep remission because venetoclax behaves a little more like chemo. It reduces the white count quickly and often can get completely rid of the disease even in the bone marrow. And so then you can have a treatment break. And so there's a two-year regimen followed by discontinuation for many people. And then the third class of targeted agent are the PI3 kinase inhibitors. We tend to use those at present for relapsed patients who have other medical issues that would make it hard for them to take a brutinib or venetoclax, which I think Dr. Mato will talk about. Uh, but they have a similar pattern of behavior to a brutinib, where you stay on them continuously, white count may go up initially, and responses tend to be partial. Now, but ev with all these drugs, even though the responses are partial, they're very durable, and as long as you're able to stay on the drug. And so that's very exciting. Also exciting is the fact that they work really well regardless of those prognostic factors I was talking about earlier. Even the higher risk patients can get prolonged benefit from these novel targeted therapies. And hence that's why they're moving into widespread use, including frontline with ibrutinib. One future direction that I'll just mention uh, upcoming is that we're eagerly awaiting some data for a one-year upfront treatment with venetoclax with an antibody, the obinutuzumab antibody. And so that will move us toward targeted therapy, but also time-limited therapy, which at least my patients, many of them do like the idea of time-limited therapy because then you're done and you're in remission and not on treatment all the time. And so I think that will be an exciting emerging therapy as well. I think I'll stop there. Thank you very much, Dr. Brown. That was really um, outstanding and really set the stage for the whole program today. So thank you so much. And I know there will be questions for you during the Q&A. Thank you. Our next speaker is Dr. Anthony Mato. And Dr. Mato is Director, CLL Program, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. Dr. Mato is going to address clinical trial updates, tips to cope with symptoms and short-term and long-term treatment side effects, and questions to ask your healthcare team about quality of life concerns. It's really my pleasure now to turn this program over to my esteemed colleague, Dr. Mato. Thank you very much for inviting me uh, to participate in this call. What an honor it is to be here with so many patients uh, and their family members on the telephone. <sighs> Updating the audience on clinical trials in this short a period is actually something that's really, really hard to do. Dr. Brown already mentioned many of the new standards, but I'll just reiterate by saying that over the last five to six years, there's been an explosion in clinical research that has led to the approval of several new agents which we're using for patients with chronic lymphocytic leukemia. Uh, just to mention a few of them, uh, Dr. Brown already mentioned the antibody obinutuzumab, which was approved, ibrutinib, an oral agent, uh, targeted therapy approved for patients in all settings, the combination of the targeted agent idelalisib with rituximab approved for patients in the relapse refractory setting, Venetoclax, which is an incredibly important drug approved for patients with relapsed CLL, either by itself or with the antibody rituximab, and most recently, uh, the oral targeted agent duvalisib, which was approved for treating patients with CLL. I start by mentioning the approved agents because most of these within the last four to five years were exciting compounds that were being studied in the context of clinical research which I guess my first point to make regarding an update in clinical trials is that the patients who participate in these trials with these agents have really led to the revolution and a movement away from the standard options of combination chemotherapy towards more targeted approaches which 
have been able to improve not only quality of life, but have in several instances been able to improve life expectancy for patients. Over the last year, there have been several clinical trials that have been presented which have really helped to move things forward in terms of that passion that we have for developing agents that are better tolerated for patients and that actually improve outcomes. I'll mention a few studies that I think are of interest to patients that were presented over the last several months at our most recent national meeting called the American Society of Hematology. And I'll try to highlight a few themes um, related to these presentations. The first trial was presented um, as part of a cooperative group called the Eastern Cooperative Oncology Group. And the, the reason I'm highlighting this trial was that it looked at younger patients with CLL who would have normally been treated with a chemotherapy combination called FCR, which is an incredibly important chemotherapy and it has been, the stand, it has been a standard of care for more than 20 years. But this is one of the first times that a chemotherapy combination standard of care was challenged by one of these novel agents. In this case, it was ibrutinib in combination with the antibody rituximab. And the take-home messages from this important trial is that the novel agent ibrutinib plus rituximab was actually better than FCR. There were more responses. The responses tended to result in people having more durable remissions which was the primary purpose of the trial, but also a surprise was that patients actually appeared to be living longer, although these data are really early, actually appeared to be living longer with the novel agent ibrutinib as compared to the chemotherapy. So one of the first trials in the front line where we're challenging a standard of care which has been a paradigm for years and showing that these newer agents, these targeted agents, can be as well tolerated or better tolerated and can actually improve outcomes for patients. Along the same lines, similar, a similar trial was presented at the same meeting, which I think is also of interest to patients. Here, the same drug ibrutinib, with or without the antibody rituximab, was compared to another standard of care, bendamustine rituximab, which has been used for many patients with CLL for more than a decade in the United States. And this trial was also um, presented by the Alliance Cooperative Group, and here the same primary endpoint was asked, could that novel agent ibrutinib be better than bendamustine rituximab here for older patients, some of whom had higher risk features? And the short answer was that this combination ibrutinib or ibrutinib plus rituximab was better than bendamustine rituximab in terms of prolonging remissions, what we call progression-free survival. In this trial, the survival outcomes, uh, overall survival, were actually quite similar between these groups. But again, more and more evidence that you don't necessarily need combinations of chemotherapy for all patients in order to achieve really great responses that are durable and in many instances can help patients to live longer. So big advance in terms of research for CLL patients in the frontline setting. That same agent, ibrutinib, was also combined with obinutuzumab, which is an antibody that Dr. Brown and myself had mentioned earlier, and those outcomes also looked quite promising for patients in terms of having durable remissions and having deeper remissions than one could achieve with that drug, ibrutinib, possibly by itself. Well, what other things were also uh, presented over the last year or so? A big theme that's emerging for both practitioners and also providers is learning how to combine these standards of care together with one another. 
At the moment, drugs like ibrutinib, idelalisib, duvalisib, and venetoclax are only approved by, to be single agents or, or to be approved in combination with an antibody like rituximab. The next steps that we're trying to understand is how to combine these drugs with one another in a way that's safe to start to mimic the deep responses that we've traditionally seen with chemotherapy combinations. And I'll highlight just a few of the data that were presented at this meeting. So the novel agent ibrutinib was combined with the novel agent venetoclax, so we put those two drugs together in the frontline setting, and these data were presented by the MD Anderson group. And the take-home message from this combination was that you start to see response rates that approach 100%, and that patients who are receiving these drugs in combination seem to have incredibly deep responses, even deeper than the level of detection that's normally used by traditional response criteria. And we start to see the entire cohort of patients treated on these trials having remission periods where no patients have yet progressed and no patients have died from their disease or a complication. Taking it one step further, the Ohio State group also looked at that same combination and also added an antibody, obinutuzumab, and the same theme, nearly 100% response rate, very deep remissions, and we're starting to see that those remissions are quite long-lasting for patients. A couple of other updates in the, in the frontline setting for chemotherapy, two groups, the group at MD Anderson and also Dr. Brown's group, uh, one of her partners, Dr. Davids, have presented data looking at the combination of either fludarabine and cyclophosphamide, so a chemotherapy combination with an antibody, and the novel agent ibrutinib. And the take-home from both of those presentations is that we can safely combine chemotherapy combinations with these novel agents, and the take-home from these combinations appear to be very high rates of response, very deep remissions, and very few patients progressing or dying from the, from the disease or the complications of the therapy. Well, in the relapse refractory setting, meaning patients who have been treated with at least one therapy and who have progressed, we're also seeing tremendous advances for patients. At the most recent meetings, we've seen similar combinations that I've presented from the frontline setting being tested in the relapse refractory setting. One example might be ibrutinib and venetoclax being combined together. This was done in the United Kingdom. And there again, we're seeing not quite as high rates of response, but incredibly deep remissions. And for the first time, we're actually starting to use rules that allow us to stop these novel agents, not based on a length of time period, like Dr. Brown had mentioned with the venetoclax therapy, but based on the depth of response. And I do believe that is a big part of the future. We will be able to combine these agents together, and if patients have deep responses, we may be able to stop these drugs based on how well they're tolerating them in combination with how deep their responses are. I'll also mention one other set of clinical trials that were presented at the most recent ASH meeting, and this is in the area of immunotherapy, which has really taken the entire field of oncology by storm, both in blood cancers and, and what we call solid tumors. But at the most recent ASH meeting, we started to see how to combine immunotherapies, drugs called PD-1 inhibitors, in combination with these targeted agents, for example, ibrutinib, which was presented by the MD Anderson group, or the PI-3K inhibitor umbrilisib, which was presented by our group from MSK. 
these combinations have largely been targeted towards patients who have ultra-refractory disease, meaning they've been treated with many, many lines of therapy and don't have other standard options. And we're seeing higher rates of response than one would expect from either of these drugs alone. And in patients who developed a rare complication called Richter's transformation, which has traditionally been associated as a life-threatening complication with few treatment options, we are starting to see some hope and some durable remissions. The last category of research I'll mention before I briefly discuss side effects are genetically engineered T cells. They had made a tremendous impression several years back, but hadn't really been at the forefront of research until the most recent ASH meeting. And again, the same theme, these genetically engineered T cells, which appear to be active by themselves in CLL, have been combined with novel agents such as ibrutinib. And what we're learning is that our targeted agents can actually help the immune system to work better and may enhance the activity of T cells. Well, with newer therapies, um, practitioners are learning about new sets of side effects. And I'll mention a few side effects that I think are of interest. So ibrutinib is probably the most commonly used targeted agent in CLL at this time. And unlike chemotherapy, which you know, has traditionally been associated with hair loss, nausea, vomiting, long-term damage to the bone marrow, ibrutinib has its own set of unique side effects that we need to be aware of and you need to be aware of so that we can help patients to stay on this medication. Some of those side effects I'll mention include atrial fibrillation, which is an arrhythmia of the heart. Very difficult to detect, but if you experience periods of shortness of breath or palpitations that seem unusual for you, it's worth mentioning that to your practitioner because they may want to perform an EKG or may want to assess your heart in other ways. Other common side effects that we think about, and I, to be honest with you, patients are very vocal about reporting, are things like arthralgias, arthritis, myalgias. Your muscles and your joints can hurt, particularly from receiving the drug ibrutinib. In most instances, it's a mild side effect that can pass with time. In some instances, it can be a serious side effect that warrants changing to another medication. I'll mention two other side effects associated with ibrutinib that patients often report. One is bruising. Um, this medication can be not only effective in controlling the CLL, but can also inhibit the function of platelets, which are the cells in the blood that help us to form blood clot appropriately. You can see bleeding or bruising complications with ibrutinib, and so if you're starting to see bruising or bleeding from any site, it's important to let the physician know. Rash is also a common complication, which is something that we watch for. I will say with all of these targeted agents, we also pay attention particularly for infection. Other side effects to mention specific to the drug idelalisib and duvalisib include damage to the liver or the colon, and so patients can have shortness of breath, which may not be related to the heart, but which may be related to the lungs. We call that pneumonitis. So anytime you're short of breath, you should definitely make the provider aware. And patients can experience mild diarrhea with any of these agents, but if it becomes a significant issue, multiple bowel movements per day, we really need to assess for infection or whether or not that's treatment-related. The last drug I'll mention, and then I'll stop there, is venetoclax, which in general is a very well-tolerated medication. It has two or three side effects that we pay attention to. The first is something called tumor lysis syndrome. It's not something you'd ever be aware of, but sometimes cancer cells can be killed too quickly by a medicine, and when that happens, we need to be very careful that the contents in those cells don't necessarily cause damage to the kidney or cause issues with the heart and so we watch the electrolytes very closely. In general, when that medicine is given correctly, that's not such a big deal. 
we can see the white blood cell count drop, and when that happens, patients may be at risk for infection. And the other thing I'll mention is that patients can have a minor side effect of GI toxicity. They can see some diarrhea related to these medicines. So just taking it back full circle, when we give chemotherapy to patients, that's generally over a four to six month period of time, and then the patients finish, and then in general, whatever side effects they're experiencing go away. These medicines are different. Most of them are given continuously, and if they're not given continuously, at the present time, they're given for up to two years, so a long period of time. So it takes a different mindset from the patients and also the providers to think about the side effects that you're experiencing and trying to determine whether or not they're normal variations, like Dr. Brown mentioned, where everyone's allowed to have a cold, for example, every once in a while, or whether or not they're treatment-related and require intensive investigations and or discontinuing a medicine or lowering the dose. With that being said, all of these medications can be quite helpful in improving quality of life for patients. And I'll stop there, and uh, hopefully we can move on to some great questions. Oh, thank you so much, Dr. Tomato. That was really excellent, really outstanding, and a lot of wonderful information about the management of your treatment side effects and, um, and of course, all the new clinical trials that are out there and just so much hope and promise, I have to say, and, um, and of course, your quality of life. So thank you very much, Dr. Tomato. And our next speaker is Ms. Peggy Anturney. Ms. Turney is Chief Strategy, Communications, and Engagement Officer for the Lymphoma Research Foundation, and she has been a key um, player, actually, in making today's program possible. Um, and so I want to thank her and the Lymphoma Research Foundation. And Ms. Turney is going to address um, all the um, services that you can access from the Lymphoma Research Foundation. It's a wonderful organization for you. So I'm going to turn this program now over to my esteemed colleague, Ms. Attorney. Oh, thank you, Carolyn, for, for those kind words, and thank you to Cancer Care for your continued partnership on these teleconferences. I would also like to take a moment to thank our expert faculty, Dr. Brown and Dr. Mito, for sharing their time and expertise with us today and for all that they do for the Lymphoma Research Foundation and really for the entire lymphoma and CLL community. I'd also like to take a moment to acknowledge our sponsors, Genentech, Pharmacyclics and AbbVie Company, and Janssen, who support me today's call possible. Most importantly, though, I would like to take a moment to thank each of you for taking the time to join us on today's teleconference. I know that we shared a lot of information with you today, and so I want you to know that if you have any questions about the information you've learned, the Lymphoma Research Foundation is here to help you. The Lymphoma Research Foundation is the nation's largest nonprofit that is dedicated exclusively to lymphoma and CLL, and our mission is to eradicate this disease and serve those touched by it. The Lymphoma Research Foundation is committed to advancing our understanding of lymphoma and CLL so that ultimately we can find cures. As we continue to make progress in advancing CLL research, we also want to ensure that you have access to the latest information about your disease. LRF offers a variety of educational resources so that you can access information in whatever way you may learn best. Whether you are newly diagnosed or seeking help with long-term survivorship, LRF is here for you. The Foundation provides comprehensive disease and treatment-specific resources, all of which are offered free of charge and have been reviewed by lymphoma experts. Most relevant to today's call, LRF offers a variety of CLL-specific resources. The LRF Helpline can answer your specific questions about CLL, as well as discuss relevant treatment options and clinical trials. 
In fact, our professionally trained staff members can run individualized clinical trial searches for you based on your particular criteria and provide you with a list of questions to take back to your healthcare team so that you can have the most robust discussions regarding your treatment and long-term care. We offer a comprehensive chronic lymphocytic leukemia learning center on our website at lymphoma.org CLL, which aggregates all of the relevant information that you may need to learn about this subtype of lymphoma and become an active participant in your treatment decision-making process. We also offer a variety of publications that have been reviewed by CLL experts, including Dr. Mado and Dr. Brown, to ensure that you have access to the latest CLL information. We have a dedicated CLL book and fact sheet, all of which can be found on our website or can be ordered for free through our helpline. Finally, our mobile app, Focus on Lymphoma, is an award-winning app that provides CLL patients and their caregivers access to comprehensive content, as well as unique tools to help manage your disease. The Focus on Lymphoma app allows users to record doctor sessions, manage medications, and set reminders for your oral therapies as well as track your symptoms and side effects. The app is available for free download in the Apple App Store and in Google Play, and I would really encourage all of you to download the app today, as it can help empower you to become an active participant in your treatment decision-making process. And last, but certainly not least, for those of you who may be looking to give back and help continue to advance CLL research, I would encourage you to join Team LRF. We offer a variety of walks and rides for you to participate in, or you can even turn your talents and passions into ways to raise funds for lymphoma and CLL research. Through Team LRF, you can meet others who have been impacted by this disease and join a community of individuals committed to impacting lives by finding cures for lymphoma and CLL. I really do hope that you will take advantage of some of the great resources and services that the Lymphoma Research Foundation provides. And if there is one thing that you take away from today's program, please know that the Lymphoma Research Foundation is here for you. Whether you have questions regarding what you learned today about CLL or you need information about the relevant treatment options for you, you can reach out to the Lymphoma Research Foundation through our website at lymphoma.org or by calling our helpline at 1-800-500-9976. Thank you all again for your time today. And with that, I will turn it back to Carolyn. Oh, thank you so much, Peggy, and that was really wonderful, and just a wonderful resource for everybody. And um, you, at the end of the call, will be getting um, an evaluation of the call, but you'll also be getting all the resources we mentioned during the call um, and the links and the t phone numbers, so not to be concerned about if you don't have them um, already, we will get them to you. Okay. Um, I just want to say a few words about cancer care, and then we're going to take questions, so start to get your questions ready. Some of you are already actually um, posting questions online, but we'll have a moment just um, before we do that, take your questions. Um, so I'm just going to say a word about Cancer Care. It's a national organization, and it provides um, really services to people living with all cancers, of course, including um, CLL, all types of lymphoma as well. Um, however, um, it's a service provided by oncology. Social workers all have master's degree in social work, and we provide practical and financial assistance um, we have a copay foundation. We provide counseling or a chance to talk with a trained person who really listens to your concerns and tries to help you with them. Um, we do that on the telephone and online as well. And we also have a number of telephone and online support groups. At the moment, we have over 138 online support groups. We have online support groups specific to CLL, to caregivers, 
people with CLL, to caregivers in general. Um, so it's a very huge um, program and indeed something for everyone in terms of the number of different groups that we have. And those groups are particularly popular um, throughout the United States, different time zones, as are the support groups as well, the telephone groups. Um, and we also, of course, offer these educational workshops. Um, I think our partnership with um, the Lymphoma Research Foundation has been over 15 years now, and we do them quite regularly, these programs, and you'll be getting a listing of those as well. And um, we also have a number of publications and things like that. So at that being said, um, I now want to actually um, turn this program over to um, uh, uh, to our um, moderator, to um, actually our, um, to Sonia, who's actually going to give you directions in terms of how to ask your questions. I'm going to try to take as many of your questions as possible. If we don't get to your question, we will then, um, I will then at the very end give you resources to get your questions answered. But um, Sonia, let's see how many we can take right now. So, okay. Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to ask a question, please press star then one on your touchstone telephone. If your question has been answered or you wish to move yourself from the queue, you may press the pound key. Those of you on the web may submit questions by clicking Ask a Question. Our first question comes from Patty A. Your line is now open. Yes, I'm curious what to know, uh, what the treatment protocol would be for someone who's been taking ibrutinib for several years and is now experiencing atrial fibrillation. Well, thank you for that question. That's an excellent question. Dr. Mato, would you like to take that question? Hi, that's a great question. Um, the development of atrial fibrillation by itself doesn't necessarily mandate that a patient has to stop ibrutinib. The, you know, the concern for atrial fibrillation is that it can lead to an increased risk of developing stroke, and so the heart rate has to be managed and controlled. And in general, people with atrial fibrillation, depending on risk factors, can either receive aspirin or anticoagulation therapy to prevent that or minimize that risk of stroke. Um, when the event happens to me, I, I don't automatically stop the drug, but I do consult with our cardiologists or, or what we call cardio-oncologists to help manage the atrial fibrillation, um, you know, as well as it can be managed medically, and then try to make a decision together about whether or not that event is serious enough to warrant discontinuation of the drug most of the time we're able to continue the ibrutinib and also manage the atrial fibrillation successfully. Excellent. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and our next question. We have a question for our online participants. I'll take that question um, next. Um, and um, for this question, um, this question is for Dr. Brown. My lymphocyte count doubled in a two-month time span, along with increased enlargement of lymph nodes. My oncologist wants another blood test in eight weeks and said if the increase continued, then he will order another fish panel to see if there's been a mutation. Does this seem appropriate? Dr. Brown, if you could just address this in a general way. Sure. I think that... Uh in general, those are things that we look at when we're assessing if CLL might be progressing, change in the lymphocyte count, change in lymph nodes. It is the case that there are sometimes other things that can intervene that can cause that. For example, if someone has an infection, that can make the lymphocyte count go up, but then it will often settle down again after the infection. And so I, it does make sense. I always will repeat tests 
at an interval and follow the course of the disease so that we determine that this is sort of a real phenomenon that's going to continue rather than something that might just have happened due to something else going on uh, with the patient's medical situation or life. And I will also say that I don't tend to treat people just based on an increase in their lymphocyte count, at least not in the frontline setting, uh, because I I find that there can be wide variability in how the lymphocyte count behaves. Sometimes it might go up quickly for a bit, but then it might stay the same for years. And so I usually wait till there's some other signs of disease progressing, which could include the lymph nodes or the normal blood counts starting to go down, something like that, before deciding that it's time for treatment. That's, I think that I hope that's very helpful to um, not only the caller but to everyone on the call. Thank you. Um, and we have an, another telephone question, I believe. Thank you. Our next question comes from Stephanie S. Your line is now open. Hello. Can you hear me? Hi, Stephanie. Yes, absolutely. And so, oh, uh, I have a really silly question. Uh, probably wouldn't happen in a million years. But could a person with CLL be like a stem cell donor to someone else that has cancer? That's an excellent question, and it's never a silly question. That's a great question, actually. Um, and uh, Dr. Mehta, would you like to address that? That's not a silly question at all. I think it's a great question. Um, in general, the answer is no. Patients who have an active cancer, and because CLL is a chronic cancer, it's always present, are not favored to be stem cell donors or donors of blood products, for example. Okay, thank you. Excellent. And our next question is from one of our online participants um, for Dr. Um, Dr. Brown. Um, I was started on venetoclax, and after, a two, after week two of ramp-up, my liver function test skyrocketed. Have you seen this? What is this cause? What is the cause? Hmm. So that is an interesting problem that I cannot actually say I have usually seen with venetoclax. I think things to consider would include whether you're getting any other drugs at the same time that were started that could affect the liver function test, whether there are any antibodies. We always look for viral reactivation. And, you know, I would hold the venetoclax probably while waiting for that to resolve, but it isn't something that we see commonly. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. And our next telephone question. Thank you. Our next telephone question comes from Salvatore M. Your line is now open. And Salvatore M., if your line is on mute, please unmute. Yes. Hello. Oh yes. Hi. Your question. Hi. Um, Yes, I'm wondering, I've been told by uh, at least two doctors that my CLL is from Agent Orange in Vietnam. I'm wondering if the treatment in any way differs from the other ways that people may get CLL. Thank you. Thank you for that question. That's an excellent question. Um, Dr. Mehta, would you address that question, please? That is a great question. Um, Per my practice, and I, I think, um, and, you know, I'd be curious to hear what Jennifer says, there is, you know, the, there are very few potential causes of CLL that we know of at this time. Uh, in most instances, outside of rare cases in families where we see um, 
some relation to CLL amongst relatives, um, it's very hard to attribute the development of this type of cancer to a specific agent or exposure or infection. But regarding your question whether or not a patient who has Agent Orange exposure is treated differently once they need therapy, in my opinion, the answer is no. The decision for how to treat or when to treat would be based on symptoms and then looking at their prognostic factors to make a decision. And Dr. Brown, did you want to comment? Or? I, I agree completely. You know, even with the Agent Orange ex exposure and the fact that it is CLL is listed as a disease potentially caused by it, we don't have a huge amount of data to that effect, and it's often multifactorial, the things that contribute to developing CLL probably, as with all cancers. And I agree, I wouldn't change how we treat it. Thank you. I hope that's helpful then, and please take this information back to the treating healthcare team. And that applies to everybody on the call. Of course, if you ask a question, if you hear something on the call, please take it back to the treating healthcare team. Um, that would be really helpful. Um, and a question now, um, so for Dr. Brown. Dr. Brown mentioned that CLL patients are at greater risk of skin cancers. How often does, do, you, do you advise CLL patients to visit a dermatologist for a skin check? So I usually send people a diagnosis, and if the dermatologist, I usually defer to the dermatologist in terms of how often they feel they need to see that person. But if the dermatologist doesn't have any need to see the person very frequently, like every three or six months, I usually say to check in every year or so for a full body skin exam. Okay. And we have another telephone question. Our next question comes from Patty A. Your line is now open. Yes, I was wondering if there have been any studies looking at um, over the years of a uh, course of abrutinib of uh, adjusting the dose given to a patient. Well, thank you for that question. Um, thank you. Dr. Mato, would you like to address that question? It's a good question. Um, there have been a few series that have been published looking at patients for varying reasons were either started on or had the dose lowered to something um, lower than the traditional starting dose of 420 milligrams per day. Um, those studies are, are flawed in part because they're retrospective and they don't have all of the rigor that one would expect from a clinical trial. Um, they have demonstrated on some level that patients who do receive lower doses of ibrutinib, for example, if there's an indicated reason to lower the dose, tend to continue to do well in terms of their response rate and their, their duration of response. There were some data recently published prospectively on a small number of patients that were treated at MD Anderson who started at the regular dose and then had an early dose reduction. Uh, total number of patients, I think, was between 11 and 14. And there, those data also look good clinically and also from the perspective of monitoring how that target of ibrutinib BTK was affected by the lower doses. In general, I tell my patients that the standard of care is to start at the standard dose of 420 milligrams, and I only lower the dose if there's a medically indicated reason. For example, a side effect where I think a lower dose might be um, might allow the patient to stay on the drug long-term without having to discontinue. It's not generally my standard practice to either start at a lower dose or lower the dose just because. Usually there has to be a medical reason for that. With that being said, if it happens, patients tend to do well. 
Thank you. Thanks. And we have another telephone question, I believe. Our next question comes from Eddie D. Your line is now open. And Edward, if your line is on mute, please unmute. Yes. Uh, yes, this is uh, Edward. Um, I'm in my third therapy. I've had uh, CLL for about uh, five years. I went through the chemo, rituxin, relapsed into ibuprofenib, lasted about two years. I'm on venclexta plus rituxin. I'm in my beginning six months. Uh, everything seems to be stable. But I was wondering, I haven't heard any direct comments on CAR-T clinical trials. I did hear, uh, I think Dr. Mito alluded to uh, gene therapy, uh, or, um, but I just wonder if there are any positive uh, notes on CAR-T. I know it hasn't been FDA approved. Well, thank you. That's an excellent question. Um, and, and Dr. Brown, would you like to address that question? Sure. So at the uh, American Society of Hematology meeting in December, we actually heard several presentations about CAR T cells and CLL. And enthusiasm, I think, is coming back around. There was very early enthusiasm for CAR T and CLL. And then it looked like the responses weren't quite as good as in some of the other diseases where it's now approved. But enthusiasm is coming back as we're starting to learn some of the ways that we may be able to enhance the production of the cells and get the cells to work better in CLL, one of which uh, appears to possibly be be using a brutinib together uh, with CAR T cells. So there are a number of trials that are available at centers around the country now and in, in the future. And so depending on where you live, you sh could potentially find such a, one such center. Uh, you know, centers that have worked with CAR T cells from very early on uh, include uh, Penn and the Hutch and NIH. But there are a number of uh, trials that are now going to multiple academic centers around the country. And your treatment history does sound like that could be an option, that you could be eligible for that if it's something you're interested in. But obviously, uh, it would depend on the details of a given trial. Thank you. Thanks. And um, I have a question from one of our online participants um, uh, for um, Dr. Mato. What are the patient options who have already had chemo, then relapse, then get put on a brutinib, and then a brutinib has to be discontinued due to side effects or, and or relapse? I think you raise a really important point. When ibrutinib is discontinued, if it's due to side effects, um, it may be reasonable to think about using another drug within the same class as ibrutinib. We don't actually have any other drugs approved yet um, in this, for patients with CLL, but one alternative that has been attractive to, to in clinical practice is a drug called acalabrutinib, which is already approved for patients with mantle cell lymphoma. So sometimes we try to use drugs that are similar to ibrutinib, um, either another BTK inhibitor or a PI3K inhibitor, for example, if, the, if it was a side effect that led to the discontinuation. If patients are resistant to ibrutinib, meaning they're progressing on the drug, a standard of care that's already FDA approved is venetoclax. That drug by itself has been shown to be very active in patients who've discontinued ibrutinib for either reason, high rates of response, and remissions that can last for several years. There, all, there are also emerging new classes of drugs called non-covalently binding BTK inhibitors that may overcome at least one of the mechanisms of ibrutinib resistance that are also being tested. 
So several different options to think about, um, but really the reason for discontinuation, I think, largely will shape what treatment choice or treatment options one would consider in that situation. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks so much. And we have another telephone question. Thank you. Our next question comes from Nancy B. Your line is now open. Hi. Um, I have a question about IGHV uh, testing, which I had done on diagnosis of CLL. And mine came out mutated, except I have this wonky gene 21 family that puts me at a worse prognosis. I wondered if you had anything further to add. Well, thank you for that um, question, um, Nancy. And um, Dr. Brown, could you address this in a general way? Right. So that's an extremely specific and sophisticated question, which um, uh, refers to a particular one of the V genes that can be used in the antibody in the CLL, of which there are many. And this particular one probably has the impact of it on the prognosis of the disease is least sometimes independent of whether it's mutated or unmutated. Uh, the point I would add is that it seems that actually whether the receptor is what we call stereotyped or not, and this gets to a new, con uh, is actually what influences the impact of that on prognosis. But the clinical assays currently available for the IGVH test don't actually measure whether it's stereotyped or not. And let me just define the stereotype. So. Uh, it means that there, among people with CLL, there are subgroups of people with CLL where the exact same antibody gene is present in their CLL, even though they're different people and they may live in totally different parts of the world. And statistically, that's vanishingly unlikely, actually. So it suggests that something is driving that, something that might actually bind potentially to drive the CLL, uh, and that that's why there are matching receptors. So, and about 30% of people with CLL have such a gene. But it's still largely a matter of investigation and not widely available as a clinical test outside of research labs. So, you know, if I have a patient with that V gene, as with all other patients, I look at what happens with their clinical course to better understand their situation. Thank you. And uh, this... Um Last question for Dr. Mato. Um, I understand there is a new medication that is similar to Brutinib with less side effects. Have you experienced, and is it available for CLL? Um, there are several drugs that are being studied within the same class as Ibrutinib. Um, they're they're so-called second-generation BTK inhibitors, but they work similarly to Ibrutinib. The one you're probably referring to is Acalabrutinib, which has been furthest along in development and already approved in patients with lymphoma. Um, the, the difficult thing in answering that question is that it's very difficult sometimes to look across different clinical trials comparing the side effects of medicine, medicines and make an accurate estimate about which one is better tolerated because the patients are so different, the length of exposure is different. Um, acalabrutinib in the initial reports have looked very favorable in terms of its side effect profile, although, you know, initially people were saying there were none of the ibrutinib toxicities, and it does appear with longer follow-up that, that several of those toxicities are present, maybe to a lesser extent, we don't know. Which What will help to answer that question is that there was a head-to-head -head comparison of these drugs performed in the relapse setting, 
in patients who had a high-risk feature. So really a one-to-one -one comparison, and that comparison is not yet published, but once we have that information, I think we'll have really much more definitive proof about whether or not there is a truly a difference in the side effects. Excellent. Thank you. And final question also for Dr. Um, Brown. Um, I was originally diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Six years later, my diagnosis was changed to CLL. Is that a normal transformation in a gen general way, if you could address this? Right. So that's it's a little bit hard to know without a little more detail on what the non-Hodgkin lymphoma was. As I mentioned in the beginning, CLL is actually really a subtype of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, and the official name is CLL-SLL, Chronic Lymphocytic Leukemia Small Lymphocytic Lymphoma. So if the diagnosis initially was small lymphocytic lymphoma, and now the cells are in the blood, that's really just the normal natural history of the disease. Another possibility, though, that we sometimes see is that there are a number of low-grade lymphoma, non-Hodgkin's lymphomas that are very similar to CLL, and I have quite a few patients, actually, where as you follow them over extended periods, sometimes the cells look a little more like one, and other times they look a little more like the other, and probably it's the same disease but shifting a bit in how it looks in the tests that we do because they're very, very related diseases, and so that... Uh, you know, if treatment's an issue, I usually try to evaluate the disease at that time, right when treatment is going to be done, to see what it's uh, seeming most like. And the, the other uh, issue I'll mention is that we know that CLL sometimes can train, do what we call transform into an aggressive form of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma, so-called Richter's transformation. And so it in sort of similarly, it's also possible to have a more aggressive non-Hodgkin's lymphoma earlier, which who knows, maybe there were a few CLL cells hiding there and then the non-Hodgkin's lymphoma arose out of that. That could be cured, but then some years later it might turn up with CLL. So in short, they're very related diseases and it is not uncommon for one of these type of scenarios to occur. I want to thank our speakers. You've been phenomenal. This has been an amazing call. I know we could go on all afternoon, but we, we said this would be an hour call, and so it is. So I want to thank our speakers. I also want to thank all of you who actually have um, you know, asked such great questions. This is an amazing – your questions have been really, really amazing as well, and I thank our speakers for addressing them. We do advise all of you to take the information you've learned today back to your treating healthcare team because, as has been mentioned a number of times throughout the call, of course, your healthcare team knows you the best, and they know all about you, and so they're best able to, of course, um, assess um, any of your – how this information most applies to you. Um, we hope this call has been informative to you. Um, and um, most importantly, as we conclude today's call, I don't want anyone to feel that you're alone in coping with CLL. I want you to now know that you're part of this very strong community of support. And I have to say, for those of you who still have questions, of course, go to your healthcare team. We never want to sidestep them. But I also recommend, of course, calling the Lymphoma Research Foundation at 1-800-500-9976 or visiting their website at www.lymphoma.org um, or contacting their helpline at helpline at lymphoma.org. Um, that's a wonderful resource for all of you. And although there are many other resources out there, I would say that is the most comprehensive resource for, um, for any type of lymphoma um, that you would want to go to. So that's 
So I want to thank you all for your participation today, and I want to wish you all um, a very fine day, and thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for your participation. This concludes the workshop. You may now disconnect. Everyone, have a great day.